Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we will hear from York University professor David McNally about the global economic slump and his take on the political uprises, uprisings in response to it. We'll also hear from Sarah K. Granke of FEMREV on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day. We'll hear from Andrea Hardin-Donahue, the uh, climate and energy campaigner for the Council of Canadians, on Canadian tar sands policy, which are apparently disrupting trade talks with the European Union. And we'll hear from Darren Stone of Voices Voix, uh, who will elaborate on the Harper government's assaults on democratic organizations and institutions across Canada. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of March 3rd, 2011. Strict financial sanctions against Libya won't stop Canadian companies from operating in the country, government house leader John Baird says. Baird says the government has been in touch with Canadian engineering company N- SNC-Lavalin, which operates in the country, to explain the measures. Baird tabled strict sanctions against Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, his five children and top ten associates in the House of Commons. Harper said on Sunday evening the federal government has put in place the UN sanctions and also imposed an asset freeze and a ban on financial transactions with the government of Libya, its institutions and agencies, including the Libyan Central Bank. As Libya's Muammar Gaddafi ordered attacks on his own people this week, thousands of arms sellers from the United States and other countries hawked their aircraft, riot gear, and rifles to Middle Eastern buyers at the Persian Gulf's preeminent arms show in Abu Dhabi. The decisions by Britain and France to suspend weapon sales to Libya and Bahrain did little to dampen the fervor of the vendors at the biennial convention known as IDEX. Amid all the change sweeping the region, the multi-billion dollar business of arms sales to the Middle East may remain the one constant. The United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia are scooping up as much weaponry as they can in this period. The UAE alone is planning to spend $6 billion on defense over the next eight years. The United States sells more than a third of its arms to the Middle East, and increasing numbers of manufacturers want a piece of the sales. This year's arms show is 30% larger than, last, than the last one. Over 100,000 people rallied in Madison on February 26th against Wisconsin Republican Governor Scott Walker's effort to remove the collective bargaining rights of most public sector workers. It was the largest demonstration Madison has seen since the Vietnam War. Tens of thousands of people marched in solidarity protests nationwide. In New York City, thousands gathered for a Save the American Dream rally outside City Hall. Crowds drawing several thousand were also reported in cities including Chicago, Columbus, Los Angeles, and Denver. In Wisconsin, hundreds of demonstrators defied police orders and slept inside the state capitol building in defiance of Walker's order to leave. Capitol Police decided not to enforce Walker's edict after hundreds of labor activists, students, and supporters insisted on staying put. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the National Union of Public and General Employees has released a final report on G20 security issues based on public hearings held last year. 
In November 2010, the CCLA and NUPGE organized three days of public hearings in Toronto and Montreal to examine police activity during the G20 summit. Based on the issues identified over the course of the public hearings, the report offers a comprehensive overview of the major civil liberties violations that took place during the G20 summit and puts forward a series of recommendations aimed at protecting constitutional rights in future public order policing operations. The report also calls for a full public inquiry into police actions over the G20 weekend. Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty has rejected calls for a public inquiry into police actions during the summit in Toronto. McGinty says there are already five reviews underway into the G20. Reports suggest Iranian opposition leaders Mir Hussein Musavi and Mehdi Karoubi and their wives have been taken from their homes by security forces. Mr. Karoubi's son told the BBC he had heard his father had been moved but did not know where he had been taken. A website close to Mr. Musavi claims the men have been taken to jail in Tehran. It comes ahead of planned protests that are due to be held today across Iran. Both Mr. Musavi and Mr. Karoubi have called for demonstrations in Iran in the light of the recent uprisings in Tunisia and in Egypt. Thousands of supporters of Mr. Musavi and Mr. Karoubi took to the streets of Tehran on February 14th amid clashes with security forces which left two dead. The U.S. has granted the first new permit for deepwater oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico since last year's spill at a BP-owned oil well. The April blast aboard BP's Deepwater Horizon rig killed 11 people and caused one of the worst oil spills in history. In a statement, a U.S. official said Noble Energy had demonstrated that it could safely drill a well 70 miles off the Louisiana coast. The U.S. had approved 37 permits for shallow water drilling since new safety measures were put in place in June. Noble Energy of Houston, Texas, said previous work on the well had been suspended in June when the U.S. put a moratorium on drilling in waters deeper than 500 feet. It said it expected to resume work in March. Barack Obama may be forced to order a two-year delay in Environmental Protection Agency action on climate change to try to avoid a complete government shutdown. President Obama faces the prospect of a government shutdown by March 4th unless he can reach a deal with Congress Republicans who are demanding a crippling $61 billion in budget cuts. The House began debate on the spending bill on March 1st following efforts at the weekend to avoid a government shutdown with news reports suggesting Republicans might compromise on some of the cuts. The Republican plan would destroy Obama's capacity to pursue his green agenda, cutting the budget of the Environmental Protection Agency by 30% and stripping funds for projects he has championed such as clean energy research and high-speed rail. The Obama administration committed to cuts emissions by 17% from 2005 levels at the UN Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen in 2009. The White House has said repeatedly that it would veto isolated measures to strip the EPA of its legal authority and funds to act on climate change. Those were the alert headlines for the week of March 3, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of March 3, 2011. A special meeting to hear eyewitness reports from Wisconsin is being presented by Toronto and York Region Labour Council on March 3rd. 
Also to be discussed is the next phase of Labour's pension campaign to extend CPP and win retirement security for all. Meet at the Ontario Federation of Labour Building Auditorium in Toronto at 7.30pm. On March 4th, at the Toronto Workers' Assembly Coffee House, Six Nations Haudenosaunee women reflect on the five years since the Douglas Creek Estates reclamation and, more broadly, discuss the lessons of land rights, struggles, and non-native alliance building. Speakers include Cheyenne Williams, one of the women who originally conceived of and planned the reclamation, Hazel Hill, a spokesperson at the reclamation site, and Ruby Montour, a cook at the site and a leading figure in the attempts to prevent development on Six Nations land in Brantford. The discussion begins at 7 o'clock p.m. at the Regal Beagle pub in Toronto. Israeli Apartheid Week is a global demonstration that analyzes the state of Israel as an apartheid system through lectures, protests, films, exhibitions, music, visual art, and forums. This year marks the seventh annual Israeli Apartheid Week. Events will be happening in cities across Canada throughout the month of March. For more information on Israeli Apartheid Week events happening in these or many other cities, go to apartheidweek.org or go to canadiandimension.com and select events. This year marks the 100th annual International Women's Day. Rallies are planned from many cities across Canada to celebrate the day. For more information on these events or to see events in other cities, go to internationalwomensday.com or go to canadiandimension.com and select Events. The 2011 Phyllis Clark Memorial Lecture will feature Professor of Economics at the University of Manitoba, John Loxley. Loxley will be discussing the global economic crisis, fiscal restraint, and public-private partnerships. The lecture will be held in the OCAM Lounge at Ryerson University in Toronto on March 10th and will begin at 7 o'clock p.m. That's all for Around the Left for the week of March 3rd, 2011. This year is the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day, celebrated as always on March 8th. To share her thoughts on International Women's Day, Alert has contacted Sarah K. Granke, a Winnipeg feminist with the group FemRev, and a coordinator of the Pan-Canadian Conference of Feminists organized by Rebels and to be held in Winnipeg in May. Sarah K. also writes a column in Canadian Dimension magazine. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for speaking with us. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So despite the fact that International Women's Day is 100 years old this year, I would bet that at least some of our listeners have never heard of it. So let's start off with a little bit of background. What is International Women's Day and why was it started? Sure. International Women's Day is an annual celebration that's recognized worldwide on March 8th um, in recognition of women, uh, women's art, culture, our work, our accomplishments. Um, and this day of celebration was, I guess, a result of the efforts of the working class women who fought for improved working conditions. Um, um, in some countries, it's um, even a recognized holiday where everybody has the day off, uh, not in Canada, but, but maybe one day. Um, and I guess it started kind of, if we go way back to 1857, a long time ago, um, there were a lot of female garment workers that were protesting against their poor working conditions, and they were demanding things like better wages and shorter hours and equal rights um, and improved working conditions in general. Um, and then two years after this demonstration, the same women created their own women's labor union. Um, and in commemoration of this event, on March 8th in 1908, um, a group of the New York City Social Democratic Women's Society sponsored a mass medium or a mass meeting on women's rights. 
Um, and so these women were also involved in the garment industry, and they were pushing for the vote as well as the banishment of sweatshops and child labor. Um, and then in the following year, in 1909, American socialists decided to make the last Sunday of February International Women's Day. Then later in about, about 1910, there was a conference that was held in Copenhagen by the Socialist International Group, which is, um, I guess, a worldwide organization of social democratic labor and democratic socialist political parties. Um, and there were some women there that proposed that the American Women's Day be internationalized, but there was no exact date that was selected for it. Um, but then in the following year, on March 19th, in 1911, um, Multiple countries, including Austria, Denmark, Germany, and Switzerland, celebrated their first International Women's Day, um, where more than a million women and men attended rallies all over the place. Um, and again, for a lot of the same reasons as before, like for the right to vote, for women to hold public office, and, and they demanded the right to work um, and to vocational training um, and end of discrimination on the job and things like that. Um, so it wasn't until 1911 that it was officially international on March 8th. So it really stemmed out of the, the workers' movement um, and focused on um, women's rights and equality in that sphere. But since then, it's turned into not just looking at what kind of struggles um, and challenges women face um, and that we want improvements on, but it's also about celebrating women. So like I said before, celebrating women's art and culture, our work and accomplishments, but also um, looking at where we need to go and still what's left to... Um, to change so that women are left less oppressed and such. What about its history in Canada specifically? Um, I think it wasn't until about 1977, if my dates are correct, um, that Canada has marked International Women's Day. Um, and in Canada, it's been about celebrating the process towards women's full participation um, in all realms of society. Um, and so since then, there have been themes... Um, each year, I don't know if it's been a specific theme since 1977, but um, at least for the last 10 years, there's been specific um, themes. So, yeah. Well, here's an interesting question for you. Um, it's been about 100 years since the birth of International Women's Day and 50 since the birth of women's liberation. And while there's been definite progress, uh, we've seen some other some other problematic things. Mm -hmm. Last week, a newly appointed judge, Robert DeWar, gave a man convicted of rape a two-year conditional sentence instead of sending him to jail. He downgraded the rape by calling it a case of misunderstood signals and inconsiderate behavior and labeled the rapist a sort of clumsy Don Juan, as if that excused his violent assault. What do you think this says about where things are at for women in 2011? Well, I think it definitely states that we still live in a sexist society, um, and specifically on that point, um, that it treats sexual violence differently than other kinds of crimes. Like, for example, we would never, in the case of something like a murder or a robbery, describe what the victim of the crime was wearing or where they were or what their attitude was, and then use it against them, clearly stating something like, oh, this person was asking to be murdered or this person was asking to be robbed. So this, this concept of blaming the victim rather than the survivor has been going on for ages. Um, and yeah, exactly like what you just quoted. Um, a lot of people in, in the society we live in thinks that rape comes out of desire and that it's it's natural because men can't help themselves. Um, and it's not just um, in the case of Judge Duar's words, but, um, you know, if you read the comments in different posts online or on the free press 
for example, you can see that it's not just about him. It's a much bigger problem than that. Um, the idea that women are responsible for their sexual assault is widespread, and that's why it's so important for us to, to mobilize and to challenge these positions. Um, and, you know, not just around that, like, but there's lots of challenges that women still face. You know, people think that feminism is dead and not necessary anymore um, or that we're all equal. But, you know, when women still earn 50, 70% of a man's income and Indigenous women and Indigenous people are still facing um, massive amounts of racism and immigrant and refugee women are treated as commodities and exploited, um, we still don't have full control over our bodies or reproduction. Um, Everywhere you look in the media, women and girls are hypersexualized and face obscene amounts of violence. Um, there's still lots of poverty. Women's organizations are being defunded. Um, so if we look around, at, yeah, we still do live in a sexist society. We and I still think, have far to go. I, absolutely. We've come a long way, but there's still um, a lot of challenges that face women. Finally, can you say a few words about the conference that you are helping to organize in May? Uh, what is Rebels? What's the idea behind the conference? And how can people find out more or get involved? Absolutely. Um, in May, from May 20th to 23rd in Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, there's going to be the second ever pan-Canadian young feminist gathering. So we're inviting all women between the ages of 14 and 35 years of age, of age um, with diverse political views and identities from all regions and cultures and languages um, that are interested in feminist issues and struggles to come together. Um, so it's going to be a three-day event with lots of different workshops, with um, lots of different kinds of creative events, um, with a big community march um, to get together and to share our reflections and analysis of different issues that affect us as young women, um, and to also to learn about and discuss our priorities for action as young feminists. So it's going to be incredibly fun, incredibly participatory, and we want to invite anybody that's listening and anybody who's not listening to come out and attend. So if anybody would like to get in touch with FemRev about the gathering that's happening in May or about different feminist actions that are happening across the country for International Women's Day, um, you can check out our website at www.rebells.org. You can also email us at rebels, R-E-B-E-L-L-E-S, at femrev.org, F-E-M-R-E-V.org, or you can call us, 204-942-7390. All right. Well, thanks for speaking with us today. No problem. We've been speaking with Sarah K. Granke, a member of Winnipeg's FemRev, about International Women's Day and the conference that they were organizing for May in Winnipeg. Pick up the latest issue of Canadian Dimension magazine today and discover how Canadian mining companies are behind serious human rights abuses and environmental destruction from the Congo to Ecuador. You can visit CanadianDimension.com to read some of these featured articles, check out our latest blogs, or order a subscription to Canadian Dimension. The Canadian Dimension special mining issue is on newsstands and in bookstores now. David McNally is a professor of political science at York University in Toronto and chair of the university's political science department. He's published several books, including Another World is Possible, Globalization and Anti-Capitalism, and most recently, Global Slump, The Economics and Politics of Crisis and Resistance. So welcome to Alert, David McNally. Oh, thanks very much, Michael. Now, uh, could you possibly uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the the 
current slump, uh, the economic slump of 2008-2009. I know that in your book, your recent book, you mentioned that there's been uh, cycles of sustained expansion and global slumps. Is there anything particularly new or um, original about the current uh, crisis that's befallen us? Well, probably the most significantly new thing about this crisis, Michael, is that unlike the 1930s, central banks the world over intervened massively right away. They pumped money into the banking system. They bailed out the banks, uh, even though a lot of them collapsed, although five Wall Street banks collapsed, for instance, the investment banks on Wall Street. Nevertheless, this huge infusion of trillions of dollars into the banks stopped the bank collapses after a period of five or six months. In the 1930s, for instance, the last really great slump uh, in the history of, of world capitalism, the banking crisis got worse for about three or four years. It just kept going from bad to worse. This time, they pumped, by my estimates, about $20 trillion into saving the banks and trying to re-stimulate the economy. And to give people a sense of what $20 trillion means, that's about one and a half times what the American economy turns out in a year. So it would take the U.S. economy a year and a half of doing nothing else but paying off that amount before it had produced $20 trillion. In doing that, as I say, they saved the banking system. But what they really did then was to replace all the bad bank debt with public debt. And now the governments around the world are coming for the public to get it. And they're doing that either by way of tax increases or most prominently by massive cuts to social services the kinds of things, obviously, that we're seeing in Wisconsin right now, where $900 million is slated to be cut out of the education budget alone, uh, the massive multi-trillion dollar cuts in Britain, tens of billions in the British case, uh, Latvia, which has fired one-third of all its public school teachers, uh, Detroit last week, where the state of Michigan instructed the school board to close half of its schools this year. So the biggest difference between this slump and past slumps is the way in which central banks, led by the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, as I say, did a massive coordinated bailing out of the financial sector. But what that's done is it's now shifted a huge cost onto ordinary working people by way of these attacks on social services. Now, putting aside the cost that's being imposed on the general public, have those uh, initiatives uh, actually done much to uh, alleviate the economic crisis, at least at the bank end? Well, at the bank end, they certainly ha did stop the collapse of the banks. But, of course, in economic terms, doing what they're now doing doesn't really work. If, when the economy is fragile... If, when it has gone through a traumatic crisis, you then start to massively eliminate jobs in the public service, for instance, you fire teachers, nurses, 
healthcare workers, social workers, and so on, as has happened in Greece, Ireland, is beginning in Britain, and so on. What you do is you drive unemployment back up. You eliminate a lot of economic demand. People who are laid off or fearful of losing their jobs don't spend the amounts on all the kinds of everyday purchases that they might ordinarily spend. So it did save the banks. Some of the banks are profitable again, but what it does is it pushes the system back towards a contraction. And that's why the British economy contracted in the last quarter of last year. Greece is doing the same thing, Spain and Ireland. And we're going to see it happening at least regionally in the United States, maybe on a larger scale as the state-level governments cut back. So as I say, the irony is, it saves the banks, but it's terrible economic policy. Mm. Well, you, you mentioned uh, just now Greece, uh, Ireland, Spain. Uh, I guess you could uh, throw in currently uh, Wisconsin. Um, the, the resistance that's, uh, that's being undertaken, uh, there, there's some question as to how successful they'll be, if, uh, as they seem right now to be rather fragmented and uh, isolated. Um, are no? Are we seeing? Uh, what is your take on the uh, the success, uh, the potential success of these uh, organizations, and and why do we not seem to be seeing uh, new forms of resistance uh, taking place, as uh, was the case in the '30s? Well, I think we're seeing what I would call the early signs of new forms of resistance, but we need to remind ourselves, and I often make this point in public lectures and so on that in the 1930s, it wasn't until we were halfway through the Depression that you finally saw the much more explosive social protest that won uh, unions that uh, really organized the unemployed, forced major concessions from governments. If we think about the first half of the 1930s, say from 1929 into 1935, 36, this was a terrible time for people who wanted to resist the Depression-era uh, attacks. But we're very familiar with what happens towards the end uh, and then moving into the early 1940s. And I think we're seeing a similar kind of cycle today. In other words, right away when the slump hit, we saw the first factory occupation in the United States in a very, very long time by immigrant workers at Republic Windows and Doors. In southern Ontario, where I live, five auto parts factories were occupied. Similar factory occupations to protest layoffs and job cuts in Britain, Ireland, France, and so on. Then we move into the general strikes that we've seen in France and in Greece, Spain, and so on. And now, as you've already mentioned, we're seeing even a revival of union protest in the U.S., but initially, it's coming from a, a weak position. For the last 30 years, neoliberalism has really weakened not only the organizations of working people, but also their confidence, their sense that resistance can work. Uh, and so what we're going to need to see, as we did in the 1930s, is in fact an example of the first few victories. I don't believe that it's the case that people are contented, I think there's not a sense that mass social protest can actually win 
results. Of course, that's been the huge sort of mass psychological impact of the popular rebellions in Tunisia and Egypt, that they have begun to sort of recreate the sense that really governments can be confronted and challenged by their citizens, that ordinary working-class people do have the capacity in their hundreds of thousands or even their millions to impose change on the status quo. But as inspiring as that is, it always takes time for those capacities to resist to recover after a very difficult period and for new organizational forms to emerge, new kinds of unions, unemployed workers' movements, radical parties, and so on. So I think we're in the early stages of that. Uh, And in some ways, it looks to me that things may be moving even more quickly uh, in some parts of the world than they did in the 1930s. Well, I know that one of the the major differences uh, in this instance is the the innovations like Twitter and Facebook, and and much has been made of of those elements here, although that was maybe something of a catalyzing force, at least initially. I'm wondering, though, You've insisted on seeing this as uh, as something that should be viewed through the lens of class struggle. And uh, yet, given that there's this uh, younger generation uh, not only utilizing those tools, but uh, also the uh, youth unemployment being so high, youth desperation with fewer and fewer uh, options available to them, uh, how would you cement the case that that this is more of a class uh, struggle as opposed to a, a generational struggle? Right. And you're right, Michael, that I do see this as a kind of class struggle, but I also want to make clear that I think in the past, sometimes some analysts who've used that concept have been very narrow uh, and overly uh, sort of traditional in their sense of what that means. For me, when we talk about class struggle, all we're really saying is that those who are not part of the dominating class, those who don't own the banks, the truly uh, substantial global corporations, and so on, those who, in one way or another, work uh, by selling their their labor uh, or are in the labor market but unable to sell it, that all of those groups of people and their households, their their families, uh, constitute the working class in modern society. So I'm not hung up on the idea that it's got to be the industrial workers and that sort of thing. I include homemakers, the unemployed, people working in the so-called informal economy, and so on. Uh, Really what, in an older kind of rhetoric, people sometimes referred to as the dispossessed or the people who just don't own the major corporate assets in our society. And so what I'm saying is, yes, very often a particular section of the working class population, it may be the young, it may be women, it may be racialized sections of workers, they will often be the spark plugs. They'll often be the dynamos. They get everything going. But if it's going to become a really powerful social mobilization, they have got to pull other sectors 
of the working population into the movement with them. And I think that's what we did see, for instance, in, in Egypt. While the youth were really the driving element in the early stages, they were able to mobilize, to draw out, to inspire all kinds of working people of uh, really all age groups. And, of course, by the last few days of Mubarak's uh, regime, his presidency, there was a mass strike wave happening in one industry after another in Egypt. Uh, and so I think you're right to identify the youth as the catalyst. But what I'm really trying to get at here is that often the group that is the catalyst articulates a set of grievances that are running through wide sections of the population that, that are not just shared by that one group, like, like youth alone, but they are, as I say, the spark plug. They get others moving and they inspire them. They show them that resistance is possible. And so I see a youth-inspired movement as having generated a kind of class struggle of uh, poor and working people in Egypt and elsewhere. What about the dangers of the struggle turning ugly? I mean, I, we know, for example, that uh, food and f high food prices and high fuel prices is uh, also uh, one of the uh, elements that's uh, maybe uh, emphasized some of the desperation here. Uh, what happens if you get uh, you overthrow a regime? You you get more democratic forms of organization, and yet those. Uh, elements remain there? Is, is there a, a concern that these revolts may result in something worse, perhaps? Well, I don't think they'll result in something worse. I think that what happens when millions of people engage in mass uprisings like this is that they develop a sense of empowerment that it's very, very difficult for them to let go. But having said that, uh, I'm not naively starry-eyed. I know there are enormous challenges ahead for those movements. So that while I don't expect something worse, there is a danger that in countries like Tunisia and Egypt that the army can just drag things out, move at a snail's pace, let a few demonstrations happen, but still arrest people here and there as they did last week. And just try to sap the movement of energy, to demoralize it, to get to a situation where the mass rallies draw fewer and fewer people as discouragement sets in. And, of course, if that happens, then they can start to try to roll back the gains to essentially really revert to a version of the status quo with different faces. So I do think that's a danger. But having said that, so far these movements have shown great resilience, real determination, and uh, real practices of democracy. Well, David and McNally, uh, we uh, thank you very much for the, your analysis of uh, these fascinating historical events, and uh, hope that you'll join us again uh, for uh, further uh, analysis of these developments. So thank you for joining us on Alert. It's been a pleasure, Michael. And David McNally is a uh, professor of political science at York University and chair of that university's political science department. On February 21st, Reuters reported that Canada has threatened to scrap a trade deal with the European Union if the EU persists with plans that would block imports of Canada's highly polluting tar sands, according to EU documents and sources. Canadian officials, for their part, denied they have 
threatened to scrap the trade deal, but said they are concerned about how the oil sands, oil, will be treated under the EU's fuel directive. So could the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, known as CETA, be derailed over Canada's tar sands practices? And what would be the repercussions for the future of Canadian trade policy in relation to its environmental record? To address these questions, Alert is joined by Andrea Hardin-Donahue. She is the Energy and Climate Campaigner for the Council of Canadians. Welcome to Alert, Andrea. Thank you for having me, Michael. So, Andrea, um, you've been very active on behalf of the Council, uh, lobbying at international climate conferences uh, for more environmentally responsible policies and, and very critical uh, of Canada's favoritism towards more tar sands expansion. In your estimation, how willing is the EU to compromise on tar sands restrictions in the name of embracing the CETA? Well, recent evidence is that the EU is heading down a track of recognizing the intensity of the tar sands in terms of how much emissions is involved in its production. And I think that that's a really good, uh, a really good and important commitment on the part of the EU. Um, because, of course, if they're going to be serious about climate policies, they have to be serious about the tar sands. Uh, now, what that means for CETA uh, is, a qu- is an important question, especially right now. What we're hoping is, yes, it, it'll be one of a number of barriers that leads to CETA not happening, because the fact of the matter is it's not a trade agreement that's good for Canada, and we would argue also not good for EU citizens. Hmm. So as far as the general public uh, or the, the citizens of the EU is concerned, how high, how prominently does uh, do the tar sands figure in terms of resistance to the CETA? Well, there was, there's growing recognition of the role of the tar sands to contributing um, both as an example of allowing the shift into unconventional oil production, which is much more energy intensive in terms of producing, therefore uh, contributes more to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there's a recognition of that example being set globally uh, in the EU when it comes to the tar sands, but also uh, a real opposition to the tar sands in and of itself because of the significant uh, impacts it's having in Canada, especially in terms of First Nations, the recognition of First Nations' rights and free and prior informed consent. So we've seen over the last couple of years a number of events happening in the UK and other places in, in EU, bringing speakers over from Canada or featuring them via Skype, We've seen uh, interventions at shareholder meetings, all focused on raising awareness around the tar sands. And I think with the recognition and the recent confirmation that Canada is using CETA to lobby against this fuel quality directive, it's really given uh, a focus to some of that work in, in ensuring that their members of Parliament um, go forward with this policy that will penalize, rightfully penalize the tar sands. Mm. Now, I'm. Um, could you? Uh, do, do you see uh, the the Canadian government? I mean, you've got basically a kind of a, a staring contest between the Canada and the EU, EU, or I should say, the Canadian government and the EU over the uh, the question of the tar sands. Uh, who who do you see is uh, most likely to blink, or or is this potentially a deal breaker? I think this could be a deal breaker alongside a number a number of other issues, particularly if we continue to put pressure uh, in, and raise the public profile of these concerns. And one of the things that we've really been bringing to the forefront 
is that not only are these trade negotiations an opportunity for Canada to lobby the EU about its climate policy, the trade agreement itself is a barrier to climate policy. And there's a number of reasons why, but the one I'd like to highlight is um, many of us are familiar with Chapter 11 of NAFTA, which allows corporations to sue um, North American governments over policies that infringe on their potential to make profits, right? And under CETA, there's a proposed investor state provision that may be moving forward. And upon our review, and not only us uh, looking through the documents, but also based on a legal analysis we commissioned, uh, this investor state provision has the potential to challenge important uh, climate policies that will have an impact on industries that contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. So um, in terms of your uh, y- your efforts, uh, who, who are you uh, working with in terms of allies, uh, both in Canada and the European Union, to, uh, to resist this uh, CETA agreement with uh, the Chapter 11-style provisions and whatnot? In Canada, we've been working with a network called the Trade Justice Network, and we've been really focused on education and awareness building in Canada on the problems posed by this um, proposed CETA. And in the EU, we've also been working in conjunction with the Indigenous Environmental Network here with Friends of the Earth, um, Friends of the Earth uh, Europe. They actually commissioned the report, the legal analysis on EU and the tar sands and CETA, as well as a number of, um, of grassroots groups um, that are opposed to the tar sands. Mm. Now, Andrea, do you have an opinion as to why the Harper government seems to be so protective of the tar sands that they would take it to the point of courting disfavor at international conferences and even, uh, you know, basically ending the, uh, the prospect of this trade deal going forward? The Harper government is committed to a vision in the energy sector that is driven by the tar sands. It's an export-oriented vision, and that vision ties economic growth to uh, the growth of sectors such as the tar sands that are very emission-intensive, and that's problematic uh, on a number of on a number for a number of reasons. Not only because of uh, the sort of greenhouse gas emissions that can bring about but just in being tied to that model of being export-oriented as opposed to seeing energy as something that needs to be sustainably developed, number one. So we need to have a transition to non-fossil fuel-based energy sources. And number two, thinking first and, and foremost about energy production to meet Canadian needs that are, um, Canadian needs that are basic needs or, or needs that... Um, Canadians have in terms of living within their means as opposed to the excessive use of, of energy. That is really what should be driving uh, an energy policy in Canada. But instead, like I said, the Harper government remains committed to this export-oriented vision, which comes at a high cost to the environment and people in Canada. Finally, Andrea, um, what kind of a time frame are we looking at here in terms of uh, whether or not CETA actually does uh, go through? Are we looking uh, a few months or possibly a year? It varies on who you speak to, but uh, there have been predictions that by the end of this year there could be a deal. I think the recent frustrations in negotiations could be altering that. 
we do know that the next um, major round of negotiations is happening here in Ottawa in April and certainly are gearing up and preparing for that. Okay. Well, we will, of course, uh, be uh, looking forward to seeing uh, how this story develops. So I want to thank you, Andrea, for sharing your perspectives uh, with Alert. Thank you for having me. And uh, Andrea Hardin-Donahue is the Energy and Climate Campaigner uh, at the Council of Canadians. Almost from the first day he became Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper has made it uh, his objective to deny many organizations that disagree with his policies and ideology any form of government funding. This practice has become particularly virulent in recent months and uh, was brought to public attention most recently with the Kairos Affair. Now an organization called the Voices Voix Coalition is putting together a list of organizations and individuals uh, purged by the Harper administration. Uh, We call it the Harper Hit List. Alert has contacted the communication coordinator of Voices Voix at his office in Montreal. So, uh, Darren Shore, welcome to Alert. Hi, thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about your organization and uh, like who you are, essentially? Sure. Well, it's, it's not really an organization per se. It's a coalition, as you said in your introduction. Uh, the way it started was because so many organizations had been targeted, and not just necessarily through uh, cuts in funding, but, you know, through, uh, you know, veiled threats or, or other means. And eventually we started to realize that it wasn't just happening to us. So, for example, the organization I was working for, Alternatives, uh, was not receiving its funding, and they couldn't communicate properly with uh, uh, Beverly Oda, who's in the middle of the Cairo scandal right now, and they weren't getting any answers. And we started to find out that it was the same thing for other organizations. And the thing that all these organizations had in common was that they'd said something that the Harper government didn't like, at least one thing. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, look, what's going on here? And we started to make more calls, and we found out that Canadians all across the country uh, had been feeling targeted uh, and had been feeling excluded, and were wondering what was happening to our democracy. So we said, well, let's get together. Let's talk about this. And we did get together. We got together last April, so it's about 10 months ago now, and uh, there was quite a feeling of, of anger in the room, I would say, and a, a feeling of of almost relief at the same time that we were not alone, that so many organizations were not alone in having been targeted by the current government. And we said, well, look, we've got to do something. We can't just allow this to continue. We've got to work together to ensure that uh, the principles of free speech are respected in this country. No organization or individual should be targeted by their own elected representatives for having expressed an opinion, no matter what it may be. We all have a right to say what we choose, and uh, this government needs to respect and understand that. Could you just mention briefly some of the uh, organizations and uh, individuals, as you put it, that uh, have been uh, particularly stand out? Sure. Well, uh, I can direct uh, any of your listeners who uh, want to see the complete dec- declaration that we came up with after our after our meeting in April. We said, "Well, let's 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 put this down in writing," and we came up with a declaration that we uh, put out last June. And uh, if they go to voices-voix.ca, they'll see it. Um, and it mentions a great number of them. There's, uh, well, when it comes to organizations, you've got uh, Kairos, obviously. Now, everybody knows what happened with this uh, ridiculous insertion of a not into the decision to fund Kairos by the Canadian International Development Agency. There's Match International. There's uh, uh, the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. There's a uh, Canadian Arab Federation, the Climate Action Network, uh, National Association of Women in the Law, 
uh, Canadian Research Institute for the Advancement of Women, and the list goes on. And there are a number of individuals who have also been targeted, and these have been often quite high-profile individuals. You've got Linda Keane, who is president of the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. Uh, you've got managers from uh, the formerly highly respected organization Rights and Democracy. Its, its reputation has obviously taken a tumble ever since the uh, intensive interference took place recently. Uh, you've got Peter Tinsley, the chair of the Military Police Com- Complaints Commission. Uh, he wasn't re- renewed in his position. You've got Richard Colvin. Most people know about that at this point. He was a Canadian diplomat who spoke out when it came to the Afghan torture scandal, and he was intimidated and derided for his parliamentary testimony. Uh, you've got uh, all kinds of other people in, in that regard. So if that's, if that's a bit of a, a taste of it, then... Uh, so in total, how many uh, organizations and individuals are we talking about? You know, there are so many. We're still finding out about more. So I don't want to put a number on it at the moment. We're still uh, We're still getting contacted by organizations who say, look, this kind of treatment has been happening to us as well, and we're wondering what's happening to the state of democracy and free speech in Canada, and we're finding out about more and more individuals uh, as we go. But within the coming weeks, we hope to have a list that we'll be able to publish. We're working on a a new version of our website at voices-voix.ca, and on that website, we'll publish what we can, and we'll continue to add more and more stories about Canadians who've been targeted. Uh, and Canadian organizations. Could you mention how your lists are are being compiled? You talk about organizations contacting you. Mm -hmm. Well, there's over 200, or just about 200, uh, organizations that have endorsed the Voices Declaration at the moment. And so there's a conversation that's going on right now between representatives of these organizations and other people who've decided to get involved with the Voices Coalition. And we're finding through contacts and contacts of our contacts who these people are, and we're doing our best to verify them. Obviously, we're all on a tight budget, but we're doing our best to verify what we can. And as soon as we're confident about uh, what we can publish and say publicly, then we'll put that up on our new website and make sure that all Canadians have access to it. And hopefully then the story will go out and spread across the country even further. And others who have felt isolated and alone, as we once did, are going to be able to come forward and say, this is not the way we want our country to go. And all of us have a right to free speech and democracy and a government that is transparent and responsible and accountable. Okay. Well, uh, I want to thank you very much, uh, Darren, for sharing that information with us here on Alert. Okay. And um, I just I wish you well as you continue to compile the, that information. So thank sure, you yeah, very we'll much. We'll do our very best, and any Canadians who are wishing to help us can get in touch by going to the voiceswhy.ca website and contacting us via the information there. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Have a good day. Darren Shore is the communication coordinator for Voices of the Voices Voix coalition in Montreal. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik and this is Music is a Weapon and today's show is entirely inspired by the recent events in the state of Wisconsin where the governor is leading a pretty strong charge against his own civil service and against teachers and against essentially against unions. And against, in the end, uh, it's war against the working class is going on in the state of Wisconsin. And, most interestingly this morning, the New York Times said that 62% of Americans don't support them. They support the right of the civil service. Tom Jerovich is a, is a great writer from Boston, and he wrote a great song about this very issue from a teacher's point of view. The song is called The Problem. I teach at the middle school 
I fight it hard to catch my breath The kids are scattered the parents are frantic They're all worried about the tests But is it my fault that the scores aren't higher The kids are so misbehaved They took my aid My class keeps growing And the board wants to cut back my pain When did I become a problem? How did all become all mine? School board says Tighten the bill, the only one that tighten is mine. I work for the state now, helping kids with disabilities. I love the work, hate the rules, for bosses than you would believe. We had layoffs again this morning. I got my children now that I can see. Parents are angry, how can I blame them? They end up blaming me. When did I become a problem? How did both become all mine? The governor says they're tightening their belt, the only one that tightening is mine. I took this national park job because I love working outside. Away from the city, the noise, the crowds, the freeway ride. But they slashed our funding, they cut all our hours by Washington decree. So here I stand with a long line of cars, everyone yelling at me. When did I become the problem? How did the fault become all mine? The president says they're tightening their belt. The only one that's at it is mine Become a problem. How did both become all mine? They all say they're tightening the belt. The only one that's tightening is mine. That was Tom Jervich with the song "The Problem." Very good song, I think. One of the things that started this all off in Wisconsin was apparently the governor gave $140 million to Walmart. And then, of course, you know, all of a sudden, they didn't have $140 million to spend. Who do they have to take it out? Well, out of the ass of the working class, of course. So here's a great song about Walmart and Union. in a Texas town gone, gonna rise again Walmart said we could never win if we fight for the right to our own union It was seven to three and we voted it in gone, gonna rise again We're the first 
first union shop in a Walmart store Gone, gonna rise again Ten workers stand for ten thousand more Gone, gonna rise again Walmart saw the writing on the wall Of the meat department and the union hall So they closed the shop and they screwed us all It's a feast or a famine, never rains, but it pours Gone, gonna rise again They play hardball and they settle the score Gone, gonna rise again They close the meat department doors In a hundred and eighty Walmart stores And they don't want to hear about a union no more
education. It's a war on child labor protection. It's a war on the eight-hour day. It's a war on occupational health and safety. It's a war on social security. Now thanks to WTO, GATT, NAFTA, MAI, the IMF, and the World Bank, it's a worldwide war. Oh, it's a war on the workers. That was Ann Feeney with War Against the Workers, and before that, Charlie King with Walmart Union Gonna Rise Again. That's it for this week, folks. See y'all soon. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbanuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left, prepared by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. Pick up the latest issue of Canadian Dimension magazine today and discover how Canadian mining companies are behind serious human rights abuses and environmental destruction from the Congo to Ecuador. You can visit CanadianDimension.com to read some of these featured articles, check out our latest blogs, or order a subscription to Canadian Dimension. The Canadian Dimension special mining issue is on newsstands and in bookstores now. Get it together.